Nicholas Brown, welcome to The Country Hour. The book, Buying Time, J.G. Crawford and International Agricultural Research uh, from yourself and Dennis Blight. It's, it's really highlighting an extraordinary contribution from one, one individual, isn't it? This is just one slice of the incredibly multifaceted life that Sir John Crawford lived. Um, we're really pleased the Crawford Fund is publishing this because this captures, again, his role in international agricultural research. The same could be said of his role in university development, government, you name it, in Australian life in the 50s and 60s. It's hard to find an area of Australian national development in that period with which Crawford was not associated. How do you describe who Sir John was and what he did for the nation and indeed the world? Well, look, that's a, again, that's a challenging question to answer simply. I mean, one way of putting it is that Crawford is of a generation. He's one of that generation of scholarship boys who get access to higher education in the late 1930s, go to university, eyes are opened, suddenly the world looks like it's facing huge challenges with the Second World War, opportunities arise for kids like Crawford to be drawn into government, and once they get into government, they get, they get in, fired up by this image of reconstruction post-war reconstruction, it's hard to imagine how desperate, particularly rural Australia, and Crawford experienced rural Australia in the late 1930s as a cadet teacher in Tamora in New South Wales, but how desperate the situation in rural Australia was in the 1930s. And while Crawford, as he said, he was not a farm boy, his father was a station master in Sydney, but for some reason he was energised by the notion that reforming agriculture, not just for Australian farmers getting access to markets in the world, but you're not going to get access to markets in the world unless people in the rest of the world, particularly Asia, and he was early on to the promise of Asia, have got the resources to buy what we want to sell. So what Crawford starts thinking about under the rubric of kind of post-war reconstruction is if Australia is essentially an agricultural economy, if that's our strength, if we want to find the money that we can use to invest in secondary industry, the only way we're going to be able to do that is by feeding, the, as he would put it, kind of ironically, because he, this is not the language that he used, the starving millions of Asia. He didn't think about them in those terms. He thought this is a market opportunity, but more fundamentally, these are human beings that deserve good food, good nutrition. You feed them, they'll get more prosperous, they'll buy our stuff we'll get the money and so the cycle goes on. But what sounds like a really crude economic proposition put in those terms, in the 1950s draws Crawford into a really big vision of international development that is built around agriculture. It's built around popular campaigns like freedom from hunger. It's built around the big investment that internet philanthropic organisations like the Ford Foundation and the World Bank are making in agriculture. I think why I'm so excited to talk to you about Crawford is that we need to be reminded, I think, of how powerful farming was and agriculture was as a way of thinking about the world in the 50s and 60s. We now think about the world very much in terms of manufacturing or of industry or of you know, services and so on. But for somebody of Crawford's generation, the challenge of the world was firstly starvation, secondly, nutrition, thirdly, getting the security in people's lives that would come from that. 
and that's literally kind of a way to change the world, right? Like literally he, a way to change the world. How you, and you know, the, you know, there's one really for a while. Crawford was secretary of the Australian Department of Trade. You know, the first department that's set up to really comprehensively develop trade policies with Asia, and he just says to his officers, quite frankly, "You're concerned about the Cold War." This is in the late 1950s. Let me tell you, the only way we're ever going to win this Cold War is if people in developing or underdeveloped countries are properly fed. You feed them, they will, they, they will, they won't see us as a threat. They'll see the world opening up in front of them, just as we see the world opening up in front of us. So, on the one hand, he's really pragmatic. On the other hand, he's driven by a fairly kind of fundamental conviction that what drives the world to insecurity is 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 inequality. What is the most fundamental inequality that faces the world in the 50s and 60s? It's lack of access, as he would put it, to reliable, nutritious food. Let's bring in the concept of this book then too, the concept of buying time. Uh, from Crawford, and uh, given the the period of time that he is working in, we're we're talking the green revolution here, aren't we? The the use of synthetic fertilisers, the ability to produce much more food than the the generations prior, and what that meant for feeding the world and for hunger around the world Absolutely. as well. So, what what is this concept of buying time? The concept Crawford for a range of reasons, partly because as a senior public servant, he was very involved in a lot of international negotiations about, you know, quite frankly, getting Australian farmers better access to get better access to markets through the General Agreement and Tariffs and Trade. And I won't take you down that path, but you know, Australian agriculture is being systematically excluded from major markets through this period. So Crawford is a pretty aggressive advocate for opening up for opening up access to opening up access to to those markets. That that brings him to the attention of other organisations, particularly in the United States, who are starting to think also about how can we use agriculture more effectively to address these issues of insecurity. Again, it's the World Bank, it's the Ford Foundation and so on. At exactly the same time, in a related argument, Norman Borlaug is starting to develop the Green Revolution, the genetic hybrid breeding of higher yielding grain varieties to address exactly this problem. And Crawford, even though he's an economist, picks up very particularly on this issue. And I would go so far as to say, because he's an Australian, he's very early identified as somebody who could be a kind of a neutral player in taking a technology that was often associated with US interests and introducing it to developing countries, particularly in India initially, but also in Indonesia, later on less successfully in Iran. But the Green Revolution to Crawford offered an opportunity of addressing what he would see as the priority, the priority of addressing the insecurity of food. Where buying time comes from is even in the 50s and 60s, Crawford is saying, this is not the solution. Overpopulation is still out there. Environmental consequences of more intensive farming is still out there. But until we address as the first issue, the insecurity that comes from malnutrition and hunger, we're not going to get anywhere in talking about those more pressing questions or those longer term questions. So again, it's it's partly this issue of pragmatism. Crawford embraced the Green Revolution. 
but he did not necessarily talk about it as the be all and end all solution to the world's problems. He said it will buy us time to address those more fundamental questions. And for him in the 50s and 60s, the more fundamental question was overpopulation. Clearly for us now, you could argue that the more fundamental question is environmental impacts. So partly what we're seeking to get at through this book and through this title is what order of priorities did people of Crawford's generation see themselves addressing? It's not that they're unaware of the challenges that are coming. It's that, that they're saying we can't address those challenges until we get some basic priorities right. Which leads to Crawford's not only the response to the Green Revolution, but to the, the issues of his day and, and putting the building blocks in place of organisations that we still use today. He's, his fingerprints, if you will, uh, are on the continued drive in Australian agriculture for improvement, aren't they? Well, they are, and they are at, at, at an international level and at a national level. I mean, as you say, I mean... One of the, the difficulties of writing about Crawford is that, as you say, his fingerprints are everywhere. And it's interesting to ask why. Why is an Australian economist appointed the first chair of the Technical Advisory Committee that advises the consultative group of international agricultural research when it's established in the 1960s on how to allocate huge amounts of funding to the research centres that are being set up around the world. Now, I'm sorry for those kind of big names. I mean, this book is jam-packed full of acronyms because really from the 1960s onwards, Crawford is living at the highest level in one part of his life. The other part of his life is you know, he's Vice-Chancellor and Chancellor of the ANU and providing the Hawke government and the Fraser government with the reports and all of that kind of stuff. But one part of his life is being lived overseas as an Australian economist, as a neutral figure in a sense buying time in advising major international organisations on what are the priorities for agricultural research. Eventually, of course, those same skills are brought home with the establishment of ACIR, which continues to be one of the, the most respective agents in distributing Australian expertise, Australian resources uh, in agricultural science to the world. Yeah, the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, um, which, as yes. you say, is in incredible work, and there are a lot of acronyms. What countries what what trips overseas do you think had the greatest impact on Crawford's views on agriculture and what research was needed? He was closest to India uh, for a range of reasons. Uh, the first major commission that he had from the World Bank was to be the agricultural specialist to what's often called the Bell Report. So in 1965, the World Bank is kind of sitting back looking at what really to put it crudely, was the basket case of India. I mean, there are there are five-year plans coming out of India, but there's really no evidence that they're making a huge amount of difference in the, in, in the to the extent that India is still a struggling, underfed country. Uh, so also India is making a number of choices, particularly in terms of war against Pakistan and so on, that the World Bank is not comfortable with, and the United States, which clearly is very closely associated with the World Bank, is not comfortable with. So the Bell Report is an inquiry into how does India need to get this story straight, bluntly, before we go back in and fund them again? And what is significant about the Bell Report in 1965-66 is that it's the first time, in a sense, that the World Bank puts agriculture first. And it puts 
a form of agricultural intervention, which is not, you know, the World Bank up until this point would invest in infrastructure, big works, that kind of that kind of high level uh, development. But the Bell Report is very much about how do we get at the local level with the expertise of the Green Revolution, Indian farmers back up and functioning. Because again, until we address that problem and all of the social and political issues that come out of that problem, India is going to be a very difficult problem, difficult issue to deal with. And India is also in this period being identified as the laboratory. So in a sense, the West is saying, if we can get India right, we can use it as a template for elsewhere. If we can't get India right, then you know what 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 claims do we really have? But what really is distinctive about Crawford is the extent to which, again, this is not really the World Bank practice up until this point. He develops really close relationships with figures who have become major players in the in the reform of the Indian economy. One of the, the major figures was Anis Swaminathan, who only died very recently, who equally is often celebrated as one of the heroes of the Green Revolution. Uh, Crawford was not just advising the Indian government, but he was developing close personal relationships with Indian scientists, not necessarily with politicians, but with Indian scientists. That meant that those scientists felt that they could, again, to put it crudely, cut through the politics and start actually applying, as Swaminathan would put it when we spoke to him, in farmers' fields, the, the expertise that, that was coming from laboratories in the developed world. And that I think is one of the real strengths of Crawford and one of the things that we kind of noticed over and over again in working on this. Yes, he's a really big figure in the institutions, but where he matters most profoundly and what we're trying to explore to the extent we can in this book are in those relationships that he develops, the trust that he develops, the ways in which groups of people who might have an antagonism to feeling as if they're being bossed around by the World Bank or by the United States government feel that in somebody like Crawford, they have an honest broker or somebody again like Crawford who is able to see um, uh, what do we need to do now rather than where are we being forced to go in the future. So again, it's that kind of buying time argument. No politician, no scientist, nobody in a developed country wants to be pushed around. They want to be given the respect to get on with the work that they know that is right. They want to be given a little bit of time and resources. And it's that in the sense that Crawford is offering. And I suppose if there's one kind of message that we're trying to push coming out of this book is critics, I suppose, of the current system of international agricultural research are arguing is that it's becoming too politically driven. It's becoming too short term and it's focused. It's very much about what governments want, not about what scientists want. Uh, Crawford would have railed against that. Every bone in his body would have said, give the scientists scope to do what they know is important, but identify your priorities. So don't try and do everything at once. If this is the grain that works, go with it. How, how do you think Crawford would feel about the, the current state of play in terms of agricultural research? It feels like less government uh, dollars are spent in uh, agricultural research and, and there's more private dollars there in industry itself funding. There are, there are sort of, there's a very different funding model for, for a lot of this work and research these days than there was in Crawford's time when governments were taking the lead. 
That's true. Again, there's a deep pragmatism to Crawford in that he would say, you give me the money and let me do with it what needs to be done with it. I mean, that's what the Technical Advisory Committee was seeking to do through that big system of international research centres. You give us the money and we will allocate that money to centres around the world that are addressing priority projects. I don't necessarily care where the money comes from. I just don't want you controlling it once you give it to me. So the crucial issue here, I think, is, I mean, you're right, clearly you've got to get the money in the first place. But the crucial issue is what are the strings that are being attached to that money? Uh, where, where I think he would be deeply uncomfortable is that there are too often commercial strings attached to that money. So I suppose that brings us into the learning of the book and the learning of Sir John's life for Australian agriculture, indeed world agriculture as well. Are there lessons in this book for today? I think there are. Um, I'm a historian and what in delivering this book to the Crawford Fund I'm hoping we will develop is exactly this kind of conversation because I think the lessons for today are very much about, as Crawford would insist, the autonomy of science in being given their head, in scientists and being given their head to pursue projects, as you put it, without being manipulated by commercial or short-term government interests. There's also, I think, the sense of trust in networks of people, in networks of patronage that, that really give people from developing countries opportunities to get ahead. So one of the great things I think that Crawford was committed to doing through the International Agricultural Research Centre system was that those centres needed to be in the countries that they most immediately served. And if they, did their, if they did their job in one country and the need emerged elsewhere, they needed to move to that area. So one of the issues that he was starting to become a little bit uncomfortable with towards the end of his life was, OK, we've done a lot of work in India, but now the priority is in Africa. So why don't we pick up those research centres and move them to Africa? I think his, his idea that you get as close to the ground as possible in research, again, is something that we could re reflect on. Are there conditions there in a modern world for a modern version of Sir John Crawford to to ever exist again in Australia? Look, I think they're hugely challenging. Uh, we end the book with Ross Garno's observation in a Crawford tribute lecture that we really need that taking Australia and thinking about how Australia can play its part within a world suffering from the scale of climate change that clearly we're, we're, we're looking at would be a great challenge for Sir John Crawford. And I think what Ross Garner means by that is not necessarily that Crawford would have the solution, but that he would be able to mobilise the constituencies to make the conversations happen, to make people think about how do we avoid climate change, but what kind of resources do we have to help us adapt to a world that is in, that, that that will inevitably uh, that will inevitably need new technologies, new practices of land use on-the-ground support for communities that are necessarily having to undergo transformation. So I think that is one point that, that I, we could end on. Crawford was a pragmatist. The whole point about buying time was he was not saying we have the solution, but he was saying 
what we need to think about are a series of relationships, a series of conversations, a series of possibilities that will enable us to work towards a sense of what are the priorities in addressing the problems that we face. So very rarely, I think, was Crawford's thinking solution driven. It was problem identification driven. And I think partly, as I understand it, that's sort of what Ross Garner is getting. If we could break the current challenge, I suppose, that we're facing, not only in Australia, but around the world in terms of environmental and climate change, it would be in those terms. And those are real skills. So partly what we're seeking to draw out in this book is what kinds of interpersonal and professional skills does it take to make this work happen? Yeah, you really get the sense, even from this book, uh, that he would approach any such challenge in such a practical and pragmatic way um, that sometimes could be lost in debates like this. Uh, Nicholas Brown, it is a magnificent book. It is, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, published by the Crawford Fund. Uh, you're launching it today in uh, the National Press Club in Canberra. And we thank you so much for joining us on The Country Hour to talk about it's it great as well. Great to talk to you, Warwick. Thanks thank very you. much. Right, bye.